Dora. Previously on Legacy Door. He wondered exactly what her game was, and scenarios flooded his mind. She could be checking on him at Brenda's request, or on her own hook, but still on Brenda's behalf. You're a lawyer? Yeah. Justin Brandt, attorney at law. I offered her my hand. She shook it. Vanessa Dorn, L3. So, a couple months into her last year of law school. Nice to meet you. So, by the time I moped back up to the ceremony, it was over. And Vanessa and her family were gone. So, I'm guessing you and Vanessa never picked up where you left off. I never saw her again. Will took this as his cue to slip away. There were many preparations to check and double-check inside the house, made easier by the family's temporary absence. Legacy Door, Episode 1.8, Misunderstandings Us, 12.13 p.m. Following a pro forma knock, the door opened and a young human in a blue jumpsuit entered, bearing a sealed envelope. We saw fear in her wide, sky-blue eyes, along with wonder and awe. She was no legatee, but rather one of the people the legatees had filled with stories and expectations of how we would deliver them a better world. Believing in that world, she gave immediate service for deferred compensation. In short, she was being exploited. But no matter, that was what resources were for. It amused us how she, whose athletic build could surely overmatch our slight one, was so thoroughly convinced of our superiority. She feared our displeasure, but even more so the possibility that she would somehow earn our disappointment. We could demand practically anything from her, here and now, and she would give it. Thinking on this, our amusement subsided, turning to admiration that such a simple creature could so precisely grasp her place in the universe. As a reward, she would live each day without worrying about the next, until the days and worries came to an end. She dropped the envelope on our desk, made a simple curtsy, and since we gave no instruction, turned and left, just as she was supposed to. We appreciated this, as we did everything that proceeded according to plan. When the door closed behind her, we took up a knife and tore the envelope open. It contained a coded message from the first legatee. The final agreements had been made and the procedure was on schedule. All that remained was securing the counterparty, and the legatee assured us this was well within his partner's capabilities. We chose to accept that assurance. After all, the consequences of failure would only be felt by them. Never us. Joyce Vera and Daniel Lutcher, 3.43 p.m. The drive back to town was much quieter than the one out had been, they had been hours in the sun, and both of them had shorted sleep the night before. Besides, there was no longer a deadline impelling them to impart information, but a little conversation did pick up about halfway. So what's the job? asked Joyce. Dan smirked. Secret, unfortunately. But it pays well. That's cool. Dan thought for a moment, as silence stretched. I guess I can say that it's working directly for my uncle which is a little awkward, but I'll try to roll with it. And there was a big contract, lawyer explaining it and everything. Uncle Arthur said I might want to get my own lawyer before I sign. Smart. Do you know anyone? A couple. But I went ahead and signed it anyway. I'm tired of being on the sidelines. Joyce kept her face forward so he wouldn't see how much this pleased her. When do you start? 
tomorrow morning, believe it or not. So is... She began, then stopped herself. Oh, yeah. Secret. Never mind. Dan smiled. How about you? Make any contacts? Some might pan out, and I guess you already know Dudek. Yeah, haven't seen him in years, but I thought that was him. He's one of those people who look more like themselves as time goes on. He seemed pretty taken with you. It happens. Dan chuckled. Well, guess our little deal worked out. For everybody, replied Joyce, briefly waggling her eyebrows at him before returning her gaze to the road. Yeah. Okay. I should probably just shut up and be happy, but since I'm taking risks anyway, that kiss seemed a little above and beyond the call of duty. So you're asking, what the fuck? In the nicest possible way, yeah. Joyce pursed her lips. Well, it seemed like the right thing for the moment, and I wanted the debutantes to know you're not some charity case. Well, thanks. But that itself kind of sounds like charity. She adopted a Middle European voice reminiscent of Dudex. I use lies to bring across a deeper truth. That, uh, you see, is the essence of art. Then she dropped it. And besides, how often do I get to see you in a suit? I had to grab the moment. Dan smiled at this, feeling pretty good about himself. But then Joyce followed it up by saying, Handsome devil. And pinching him on the cheek, which made it all feel grandmotherly. Well, you may get to see me be handsome more often. Uncle Arthur says I should dress casually, but I plan to be pretty conservative in interpreting that. Good idea. He might just mean you can loosen your tie if it's hot out. I'm also going to start looking for apartments as soon as I get home, like some kind of gainfully employed adult who crashes neither at his mom's nor Jerry's. Joyce said, That's good. But in a vaguely grudging tone of voice that provoked Dan a little, he had hoped for something more encouraging. So I'll be out of your way, at least. He went on. Joyce's face went hard. Don't worry about it. Dan wasn't sure where the jolly exchange of good news had ended, but since it was over anyway, he continued to push. If you like, you could spread the happy news around. Joyce took a deep breath of suppressed emotion, then looked at him even as she accelerated the car. Listen, Brenda's problem wasn't that you didn't make enough money. It was how not making money made you act. She returned her eyes to the road in time to change lanes around a delivery truck. It made you mean habitually mean. And making up for that? Not so easy. Well, I'll try to work on that too. Oh yeah, and about that. If you're going to work on some sort of maturity act so you can pretend to be the person she wants and trick her into loving you again, well, I'm her friend. I'm the person you don't tell. Dan responded with silence, which he now felt he should have resorted to sooner. He tried to console himself that he'd learned more about Joyce's motivations, but didn't really think he had. He pondered this and his problem relating to people in general through the remainder of the drive, the only sounds being the wind and the engine. Justin Brandt, 10.16 p.m. The softball had been tossed, post-game beers consumed, shit shot, fun had, and I was settling down for an early night alone at home preparatory to resuming my weekly juggling act at the office. Louise would be giving me a little consideration for the Strauss case, in terms of assigning new work, but my existing clients were my responsibility. 
And that included a few hard-up people I was helping through bankruptcy via Chicago Volunteer Legal Services, who basically had no one else to turn to and a ticking clock on holding on to the few possessions they had. So no matter how interesting or well-paid the Strauss work was, I'd have to keep up with the rest of it somehow. Amidst all this fun and anxiety, Vanessa Dorn had been put out of my mind. John O.'s answers had settled my curiosity without sparking any new interest, to such an extent that when Jaina unexpectedly appeared in the stands during the eighth inning of my softball game, my pleasure at seeing her was completely free of distractions or comparisons, and her sprightly presence during the socializing afterward filled me with a sense that I must have done something right somewhere. And so, when doing my I-hope-there's-nothing email check before turning in for the night, I was completely blindsided to see one from V. Dorn, though of course it took me no time at all to fill in the missing letters. Hey, it's me from the laundry. The law student from the laundry, that is. Got your address off your firm's website. I'm going to be staying a couple extra days, and I'm reconsidering whether maybe practice in Chicago might be my best move. Would you have time for lunch tomorrow or Thursday? I didn't, but I would make some. You know, just to be polite and supportive. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Julia Dorn, 10.17 p.m. Julia watched a car on her bedroom TV drive off to a distant horizon, bearing away the tight-jeaned protagonists as the credits rolled to the strains of unsubtle hip-hop-infused rock. She came back to herself, lying on her stomach, head propped up on a pillow. Beside her, reclining on more pillows, was Vanessa, finishing up some sort of correspondence on her phone. The corners of Julia's mouth subsided involuntarily. It saddened her to see Ven so detached from their joint activity. The film had been nothing special, but the Dorn sisters didn't have many rituals, and going off together once each visit to grab a couple hours of dumb on-screen man candy was one. Vanessa blinked off her phone and smiled at Julia like she was hiding something. Julia shook her head. Ven was such a mystery to so many people, but to her half-sister, she'd always been an open book. What are you up to? Julia asked. She normally didn't pry, but she suddenly didn't feel deferential. Vanessa's smile became rigid. Making plans with Mag. Figuring out where she wants to get picked up for the long drive tomorrow. Lies, thought Julia. She couldn't think of any possible reason for Ven to lie about this, but she was sure she was doing exactly that. But though the lying was clear to her, the correct course of action was not. Did Julia really want to butt in where her sister didn't want her, at the risk of poisoning the last hours they'd spend together for months? Or would she rather spend those months wondering what Vanessa was lying about? The situation seemed to be lose-lose. What's wrong? asked Ven, thereby shifting the focus away from Vanessa's secrets and onto Julia's reaction to them. Dunno, said Julia with a shrug, playing for time. She turned over sat up and folded her long, sweat-pantsed legs so she could hug herself at the ankles. Guess I've got the everybody's-going-away blues. Vanessa's smile rose on one side, becoming more purposefully cheerful. Well, it's not like you'll be stuck here. You and Mom will have a great time visiting colleges. And you'll find some place perfect. You'll be amazed how it feels like your life has just begun. Her sister's words did stir the edges of Julia's imagination but the center was still gloomy. And Graham goes back to Duke, Julia said. 
which leaves Kevin at school by day and alone with Dad by night. Vanessa's eyes went blank. Julia could tell that Ven was hiding a strong reaction, but not what it was. Rather than pry, Julia shared her own thoughts. Dad's up to something. He's a lot sicker than he'll admit, and Kevin will just hide. Vanessa visibly gulped, then answered carefully. Dad has always made his own choices. You guys just have to accept that. If he doesn't let you in, he's not your responsibility. She drew a sharp breath and let it escape. Julia looked at her hard, their whole shared life coming into focus. When you were little and it was just you and dad and your mom, what was it like? The crooked, forced smile returned. Vanessa momentarily met Julia's eyes. I don't remember much. Something in Julia just couldn't let the subject go. She asked, Was he different? And that's where she intended to stop. But she heard her own voice continue, unbidden. Did he love you? Vanessa took another sharp breath, and her eyes looked alarmed. They fixed on Julia and spent a long moment measuring her. Julia remembered countless times when some bit of paternal negligence had reduced her younger self to tears, causing Kevin to scurry away in emotional terror. Her mother and Graham would try to distract her, but the only one who could really comfort her was Vanessa. Sometimes she would give that comfort immediately, but more often only after pushing Julia away for as much as a day. Vanessa would complain about having to do it, and call Julia a baby who needed to grow up, but she would always eventually take her in her arms and tell her that they all loved her and each other, and only then was everything okay again. I don't think he ever did, said Vanessa, looking carefully at Julia's reaction. Julia felt something like a stab in her heart, but she would not let herself cry. If Vanessa was going to finally treat her like an adult, just a few years after Julia's last tantrum, then Julia resolved to act like one. Her expression must have passed muster, because Vanessa continued, her eyes now focused on the window. He felt something for Mom. Maybe he loved her, I don't know. Whatever it was, it was strong. I got a reflection of that, and maybe once she was gone, it seemed like a lot, but... It was never for me, myself. It was for the her in me. Julia could feel that this wasn't a new discovery for Vanessa, and she traced the implications. All those years, while Julia was demanding assurance of love, Vanessa had known that there was a hole in the heart of their family. But she'd spun a cocoon of lies that Julia could grow up in, just as Julia now realized she herself had always done for Kevin. Julia might only be a few minutes older than him, but she took the role of big sister seriously. Then Julia re-examined years of memories of her father, and felt her head shake of its own accord. I can't believe it. Wait, no, I... I mean, I could tell he didn't really care about me, but... I guess I thought if he loved any of us, it was you. He paid attention to you, and brought you into the business. Vanessa's face tensed. She was definitely holding a lot back, but she did answer. Well, like I say, I did feel something from him. He acted proud of me, sometimes. 
when I was more clever than he expected, at work and earlier. But it was always like he wanted to show me off to someone. I don't know who. I mean, he considers almost everyone outside our family to be idiots. Julia nodded at the plausibility of this. She could tell it was a half-truth, but there was real, roiling emotion behind it. I guess we kids will just have to look out for each other, said Vanessa seriously. Then she plastered a smile on and said, I know I've been bad at that, but I intend to try harder. Julia couldn't argue with Vanessa's self-critique, but the sincere emotion and the resolution motivated her to roll over, sit up, and share a hug with her half-sister. Vanessa responded with a hard squeeze, but Julia knew it wouldn't last. Vanessa had never been one for lingering closeness, unless there was something to keep her mind occupied. And besides, Julia felt the need to see Kevin. Nothing in her life ever felt real until she checked in with her twin, even when it had been something he'd mock her for. And this time, she needed to give him some words to armor him against the week to come. I'm going to find Kev. If I don't see you before bed, good night, V. Vanessa's smile became sad and sincere. Good night, Jay. They hugged again, very briefly, and Julia rolled off the bed and walked out in bare feet. Vanessa had never called her Jay before. Always Julia or Jules or Jewelry or some instant nickname, many of them demeaning. It felt like she'd graduated. It occurred to Julia that she still hadn't discovered what Vanessa had been lying about, but she decided to leave it be. Little sisterly snooping seemed like the surest way to bring their new closeness of equals to an end. Julia reached Kevin's room. The door was closed, so she knocked lightly. No answer. She tried the knob. The lock he'd insisted on years earlier wasn't locked, so it opened into darkness. Looking for your roommate? Asked a sharp, mocking voice behind her. Julia gasped and spun around. Will Riley stood there, one powerful hand holding the other, his face in its habitual, mild sneer. Julia noticed a rare irregularity in his carefully managed straight hair. She had always disliked his presence in their lives. He didn't often intrude on the family, but she could never be sure he wasn't just around a corner. Something about this moment, however, escalated this instinctive annoyance into real hate for the first time. Yeah, said Julia, seeing no point in hiding it. Do you know where he is? Down talking to your pops. Can't say what about, but I think they'll be at it for quite a while. Julia knit her brows. What about indeed, she thought. About whatever Vanessa was lying about? About Kevin's future, which their dad might not live to see in control? Both possibilities gave Julia a sympathetic twinge for Kevin's predicament. But she pushed it down and gave Riley a cold smile she'd copied from Vanessa. Thanks, she said, and strode away, feeling very haughty, except for the smack her feet made on the wood floor. She brushed her teeth and returned to her room. Vanessa had left, of course, having turned off the TV and returned the remote to the dresser top, which served as entertainment center. Julia was melancholy, but resolved not to worry about any of them for the night. She packed a final few things into her suitcase, set a very early alarm on her phone, turned out the lights, got under the covers, and caught up on social media until sleep took her. Monday, October 9th, 2017. Daniel Lutcher, 8.53 a.m. 
Dan suppressed a yawn as the Dorn house came into view the next day. He'd been repeatedly awoken during the night by what he now called the forest, cities, and cells nightmares. The recurring theme of human development juxtaposed against a monstrous civilization had become tantalizingly clearer even while individual details remained unreachable. At each awakening, he'd see some shape in the room that resembled the irregularities at the top of the tree-sized cones, but then the shape would resolve itself into something mundane. He'd slept for most of the night, on and off, but the sleep was not restorative. Nevertheless, he pushed himself out of bed on hearing his alarm and donned his choice of casual workwear. A sports jacket, dress shirt, slacks, and no tie. His mother, pleased by developments, insisted on renting him a car as a new job present. Apparently, her friend Alicia's corporate rate was very reasonable by the week. Dan finally met her when he picked up the car and had to admit that she seemed as nice as his mother had said, though so animated that he couldn't imagine keeping up with her romantically. He pulled to a stop outside the wrought iron roadside gate, which was closed but unlocked. He got out of the car, unlatched the gate, and pushed it open, which had been his job during childhood visits. He drove forward a little, got out again, and closed it, the metal clang reverberating through his memories. He wasn't always comfortable with memories, but considered these familiar ones preferable to the strange new ones from his dreams. He then got back in the shiny silver rental car and parked in the almost empty driveway. He grabbed his messenger bag and walked to the front door. Just as he was about to press the call button, the door was opened by Alphonse wearing a blue blazer and tie that projected security guard more clearly than the lighter outfit he'd worn the day before. He also seemed bigger. Alphonse smiled. Please come in, sir. Thank you. Can you call me Dan? I can call you Dan if you like. Mr. Doran asked me to give you these. Alphonse held up a ring of three keys. Dan stepped in and accepted them, noting details so as not to confuse them with Jerry's apartment keys. These two are the front door, added Alphonse, pointing. This one's the back door, both top and bottom. The sunroom uses a different key, so no use trying it. Thank you again, said Dan, interlinking the ring with Jerry's. Is Mr. Dorn... He called to say he'll be a little late coming back from his meeting. His doctors are waiting in the drawing room, but he said you might want to wait in the atrium here. Keeping us apart? Asked Dan with a friendly grin. I would say it's more comfortable. Said Alphonse, smiling neutrally, his demeanor completely correct. Well, guess I'll wait here then. Thank you. I'm going back to the garage. Pick up a phone and press star two if you need anything. Dan? Thanks. Alphonse? Dan sat in an easy chair and checked the contents of his bag. Small paper notebook, which he transferred to the inside pocket of his jacket, two pens, one of which he put with the notebook, laptop, which he left where it was, and a copy of a free newspaper, the Chicago Reader. He took the reader out, noting that it was even thinner than the last copy he'd looked at, perhaps two years earlier. He checked the apartment listings, which were skimpy. He supposed a lot of that was on Craigslist now. All a sign that the economic model, which journalistic careers had once depended on, was breaking down. But more immediately, it reduced the ways he might occupy his mind without just staring at his phone. He barely registered the sound of footsteps on the wide carpeted stairway which led down from the second floor to the living room, and so was unprepared when a woman's melodious voice called, Dan, in a welcoming tone. He looked up, surprised to see it was Vanessa. She was wearing jeans, carefully ripped at the knees, and an irregular, pulled-out white blouse. Her hair hung back from a clip. He stood up. 
Hi, Ven. It occurred to him that the last two times he'd seen her, eleven years apart, she'd been dressed up, and he'd stopped thinking of her any other way, which he now thought was silly. She'd worn jeans or shorts through most of their childhood, but he'd thought of her differently back then. She gave him a fleeting hug with the easy casualness of a lifelong friend and sat down cross-legged on the couch near his chair. Her touch, warmth, and girl-next-door freshness made Dan's heart beat a little faster. So how are you? She asked, smiling as he sat down. There was such a crowd around you yesterday we didn't get a chance to chat. That's true. He said, playing for time. It had seemed like she was avoiding him at the party, but he was prepared to believe that she'd just been avoiding the bustle of it all. In any case, he decided to change the subject as quickly as possible. I hear you're doing great at Drake. Oh, you know, well enough, getting by. Her modesty charmed Dan, who remarked, I'm surprised your dad didn't send you to U of C. She seemed like a good fit for the University of Chicago's gothic campus on the south side where their parents had all met. Oh, don't think he didn't try, <laughs> said Vanessa with a small laugh. But I had a strict guideline. I took a map and drew two circles. One three hours drive from Chicago, one six hours. And I only considered schools between them. Close enough for me to visit by car. Far enough that Dad or Sandra wouldn't just drop in. Sandra, Dan noted. Not Mom. It had always been Mom when they were growing up. Especially if she was trying to get a ruling against Dan. The pause lengthened. Then Vanessa said, Please, don't take this wrong, but I hear you dropped out of Kent. Yeah, it was all right. But it seemed to be training me for a job I wouldn't want. Hey, you don't have to convince me. I'm impressed by anyone who can figure that out. Some of the best students at Drake have no idea what they're going to do with their JD. They're just going on inertia. What about you? She put on a manic smile that formed her face into a portrait of brittleness. Well, I do consider myself one of the best students at Drake. Dan chuckled. She followed up quickly, her expression softening. But yeah, I'll be practicing. I have a job lined up in St. Louis as soon as I get out. Hmm. That'd be what? About four and a half hours from Chicago? You know it. <laughs> they both laughed. Dan basked in the shared humor. There had been moments as kids when he'd seen her this relaxed, when they were having so much fun they'd forgotten themselves. But of course, he'd rarely had the presence of mind to take notice of her at such times. A low mechanical noise sounded in the far side of the house, dulled by various walls. Dan remembered this would be the garage door opening. There's one thing, though, Vanessa said, delicately reclaiming his attention. About what you're doing for Dad while I'm gone? I was wondering if you could fill me in on something. Dan blinked. He heard the garage door close. His eyes met Vanessa's, and suddenly he knew. And she knew he knew. She was sweet-talking him. It had been so long since Dan had been sweet-talked by a real expert, he'd forgotten how good it could feel. Not just a publicist going through the motions, but someone who really put their heart into it. I'm sorry, he said, carefully trying not to kill the moment. I promise not to say anything about it to anybody. Vanessa took an interest in her knee where it poked out of her jeans, rolling a frayed denim thread between her fingers. Oh, <laughs> I know you can't say anything about the big secret. I, I was just wondering how long you think it's going to take. I'm sorry, Ben. I just can't help you. Dan didn't want to say these words, but also didn't see an alternative. 
He knew his own weaknesses and would not knowingly let anyone exploit them. Her eyes came up in his direction again, and there it was. The hate. Dan didn't know what exact combination of jealousy, rivalry, and other emotions and incompatibilities had made them enemies all those years. At the time, he'd often welcomed it. Competition was fun, pretty girls were scary, and enmity was a simple relationship to manage. But in this moment, he could see what they'd missed out on. Her adolescence, he knew, had been at least as hard as his, with her mother lost in some tangled mystery and her house full of half-family and memories. He could picture their skinny younger selves in shorts, meeting chastely behind a secret tree somewhere, sitting cross-legged, knees and foreheads touching, unloading their secret crushes and fears and all the rest of puberty, sharing with the one person on the other side of the gender-barbed wire who they wouldn't have to impress, to act cool around, to worry about. Real family. But these moments had never happened, and now it was too late. Whatever it is, she said with careful control, I'm going to find out. It would be better for everybody if you just tell me. But I can't. Why don't you just ask your dad? She seethed and shook her head tremulously. I can't even say what the most idiotic part of that question is. Dan's stomach lurched, but it didn't change his calculations. She let her head drop and expelled a cleansing breath. Goodbye, Dan. I hope you're... Life works out. Say hi to your mom. She got up and walked off at an accelerating pace, through the dining room and around the corner, which Dan knew led to the kitchen. He heard a man's voice from that direction. Good morning, counselor. Get bent, Riley, was her instant, throaty reply. Dan smirked. Even as an enemy, some part of him had always idolized her. Will Riley appeared where Vanessa had disappeared, wearing an expensive business suit and an exaggerated grimace. Dan rose again and gave him a two-fingered wave, which he returned. The boss's daughter, said Riley. It never works out quite like the internet would have you think. Dan raised his eyebrows in surprise at this informality. He was so used to thinking of Uncle Arthur's assistants as cool, indifferent grown-ups that it hadn't occurred to him that Riley was probably about his age, and today, on edge. There was something looser about him than yesterday, but at the same time, very alert and dangerous. And here's your retainer, Counselor Number Two, said Riley, reaching into his valise and producing a business-sized check. Dan stood up, took it, and inspected it closely, not quite believing the amount written there. This would be more than enough for first month's rent plus deposit on a studio apartment, or what would probably be wiser if this job continued to buy a serviceable used car. Thanks, but I'm not a counselor. I dropped out. Corrected Dan casually, not expecting the explosion of pent-up tension that resulted. Jesus, what is with everyone this morning? Riley demanded, though leaving no room for Dan to reply. But here's the thing. He poked two fingers into Dan's chest. You're going to be in there with him in places where he'll have no friends. I'll be on the other side of the door. Alipur will be back in her office. Doc Lawrence will be off fuming who knows where, and the family won't know anything about it. We were hoping Nurse Kim could be there, but she got caught in the middle, and that fell through. So you're going to have to be everything rolled up into one. So whatever skills you've got, keep them sharp. Understand? Dan nodded, sobered. Understood. Good, Riley said. Then he pointed the fingers down at the check. That's hiring bonus, plus your first four days. Don't spend it. 
Ah, well, I'll leave it up to you. There was a chirp from inside Riley's coat, followed by Arthur's fatigued voice. Send Dan to the study and go get the logicians. Riley pulled a walkie-talkie out of his inside pocket. Will do. He turned to Dan. You know the way? Unless they've changed it. Doubtful. Said Riley, turning and leaving. Dan walked down the tiled hallway, past the sunroom door on the left, onto the study door on the right. He'd never been invited into the study as a child, but he and the others would sometimes sneak in if no one was around. The door was ajar, but he knocked anyway. Arthur's voice came breathy and weak. Come in. Come in. Close it behind you. Dan did so. Arthur looked as bad as he sounded. A rather depressing investors meeting this morning, said the older man. I meant to put on a little performance as the feeble old man half out of this world, but I seem to be living the part off stage. I fear today's interview will be very short. Dan nodded. There was a knock at the door. Arthur spoke, sounding more vulnerable than Dan had ever heard him. And already it begins. Let them in, will you? Dan opened the door. Riley, on the other side of it, gave a smirk and nod, then stepped aside. Behind him was Uncle Frank, in his inevitable hat and overcoat, looking straight past Dan. Behind him, in turn, were a pair of young adults in blue scrubs, a man and a woman, both blonde and beautiful, both with smiles a bit too wide and blue eyes a bit too excited. They carried large, bulging, white shoulder bags, but Dan didn't focus on them for long, because behind them was... a mystery. What he saw looked like a very slender person in a white lab coat. Long black hair was back in a ponytail, and a surgical mask over the face. The eyes above the mask were East Asian. For a moment, Dan tried to square the face with the nurse he'd seen the previous day, presumably Nurse Kim, but it didn't fit. This person was shorter, slighter, and the eyes didn't look like they could ever have carried the emotions which had filled the nurses. They were like a technically perfect picture of eyes. This impression was so strong that it startled Dan when they shifted to regard him with something he wanted to call curiosity but honestly couldn't describe to any human feeling. Dan stepped out of the way instinctively, and the figure walked in with such smooth steps that they might as well have been floating. Dan felt primal relief that the eyes were no longer on him. Another masked woman, whispered Arthur Dorn. Shut up, said Frank Lutcher, casually looking around the room. Dan's shock at this rudeness was increased by Arthur's lack of offense. Frank seemingly addressed the air. I am here with Connor Pearson, Kara Lilt, and a person we have agreed will not be named, to commence Arthur Dorn's treatments. Danny, take notes. P-E-A-R-S-O-N-L-I-L-T-T-R-E-A-T-M-E-N-T-S. Does that conclude Danny's business here? For the moment, yes, replied Arthur. Dan had pulled out his notebook and was scribbling furiously, but took a moment to look at the sick man and ask, Are you sure of that, Uncle Arthur? Arthur smiled with apparent effort. Things may seem unusual, but all is proceeding as expected. Note down everything you've seen. Arthur took a difficult breath. But remember, all is to be kept secret. Please be ready in three hours to talk to me again. It is possible you will have to wait longer, but be ready. His piece said, Arthur's head dipped forward. Dan looked around. 
at the smiling blondes lowering their bags, at Uncle Frank glaring at him, and at the masked figure, faced away from him, standing perfectly still, he very much wanted to ask a second time to make his uncle reconsider being alone with what seemed like a highly dubious assemblage, but he couldn't bring himself to tax Arthur's fragile energy, and everyone was clearly, eagerly, awaiting his absence. Things have gone too far to turn back now, said Arthur to the floor, just barely audible. You heard him, said Frank harshly. Go. Dan took one last look at Arthur, who still drooped, and tried not to notice that the masked figure had turned toward Dan again. The empty eyes evoked the feeling of being studied by the conical figures of his nightmares. That was the push he needed. Dan turned around, opened the door, and exited with a mixture of relief and shame, feeling that he had just retreated, or rather deserted, in the face of some important battle. Riley escorted him back up the hallway and closed the hall door. And now it's the front room for three hours. Or if you want a little more privacy, a couple of the upstairs bedrooms are set up as offices. Dan shook his head. I'll go find a cafe or something. I've got to get out of this house, just to prove to myself that I'm not trapped here. You're not, answered Riley with a grim look. Lucky you. You have been listening to Legacy Door, episode 1.8, Misunderstandings. Jamie Gosling was the primary narrator. Jamie Wren was Dan Lutcher. Michelle Lamone was Joyce Vera. John Dre was Justin Brandt and Tom Riley. Stacy Tappan was Vanessa Dorn. Teresa Echeveste was Julia Dorn. Joseph Page was Arthur Dorn. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Autumn Morning, also by Wayne. You can hear works by him at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana Enash. This episode's cover image is My Boo by Talis Alvis. You can find images by him on Unsplash. Perceptive listeners may have picked up that something has been going on with Vanessa Dorn, linking her appearances in Dan's memories, Justin's inquiries, and now Julia's reality. Well, you'll finally learn what that's about in next week's all-Vanessa season capper, Motives. And if your motive is to gain a deeper and easier understanding of the story, you can find us at Legacy Door Novel on Twitter and Facebook, or check out the Family Trees, Transcripts, and other supplementary material at our website, LegacyDoor.wordpress.com. If you'd like to support us, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice, or perhaps purchase the complete book in Kindle or paperback from Amazon, or as an audiobook from many retailers, including Audible. This podcast is made possible by Dueling Genre Productions, home of many fine podcasts from general pop culture to individual movies by minute to the audio drama Geek by Night. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, all rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Goodbye. Dueling Genre.